Back in my grad school days, I was friends with another student in a different academic field. We'll call her Belinda. Belinda and I both knew each other from Bible study, and we had a connection. She and I were both Christians. We attended the same church. We both went to Ohio State for undergrad, and we both even loved Volkswagens. As I got to know her better, I found out that she was very passionate about being pro-life on abortion. You see, Belinda's parents were very involved in the pro-life movement. So from a young age, she grew up going to the anti-abortion protests, and she was very immersed in that culture. She believed that a politician's views on abortion told you everything you needed to know about their integrity. So I remember one day, we were riding around in her neighborhood, and she had just moved into this neighborhood. She and I saw these young black men walking down the street, and they were wearing white t-shirts. And, you know, back in those days, white t-shirts were in fashion. And so she saw these young men, and she said, they must be gang members. But when I saw these men, I saw my brothers, who are law-abiding, good people. And I thought to myself, is that what she would think of my little brother, who has a very giving heart and is really family-oriented, if he were walking down the street in a white t-shirt? So that really bothered me. She and I also talked about poverty one time, and her thoughts were this. Well, the Bible says, you don't work, you don't eat. Wait, what? When she said that, it made me think about how, when I was a kid, there was a time when my dad was pushed out of the company he worked for and he was blacklisted. And he was unemployed for close to two years. Our family eventually had to go on welfare. My mom went back to work at a minimum wage job. No one would hire me at 15, but once I was 16, I started working too. I worked at McDonald's for minimum wage. My dad was constantly looking for jobs, but the jobs that would have been less lucrative considered him overqualified, and he couldn't get work in his field of expertise because the company he had come from was tarnishing his reputation. Eventually, he was able to reconnect with some people he knew from a long time ago, and he was eventually able to land on his feet with another job. Now, it didn't pay like the last one, but it was enough to get off public assistance. So, back to Belinda. So, without getting into my family's past, I asked her, what about the children? She said, well, they have charities that feed kids sandwiches if they need them. Was the Bible really saying that back when my dad didn't have a job, my family should have starved? How is that in line with being pro-life? The thing that sucks about this is that Belinda was a nice person. She helped me out when my car didn't work and never asked for anything in return. She was there for me when my dad passed away. She challenged me on the parts of my growing Christianity that needed work and introduced me to the concept of iron sharpens iron. I met a lot of other great people through her. I learned a lot from Belinda, but she held some views that were contrary to the very Bible she believed in. She accused men she did not know of criminal associations instead of seeing them as made in the image of God. The Bible verse that defined poverty for her is actually about laziness, not about the poor. But she did not take into consideration other parts of the Bible that speak to how Christians should treat the poor. She was a nice person who believed in bad things. In 2018, America is full of nice people like Belinda. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this 
is Potstirrer Podcast. part two of Riverside Chats, which was originally supposed to be out today, is coming June 17th. I decided to put that episode on hold and put out this one instead because I want to talk about some issues that are quite intertwined. And it's important enough that I feel like I just can't wait the extra couple weeks to talk about it. So about a month ago, Attorney General Jeff Sessions instituted what he calls a zero tolerance policy where if undocumented immigrants are crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, the children will be separated from their families. The aim of the policy is a 100% prosecution rate. Adults will be sent to federal court, while children will be sent to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is an office that's part of the Department of Health and Human Services, as part of their unaccompanied alien children policy. As part of this policy, children who are considered unaccompanied alien children are resettled in the U.S. with sponsors, who are often family members already in the country, until their court dates, where it's determined if they're able to stay in the U.S. or if they'll be deported. Whether they're adults or children, these trials are usually conducted without these people having legal representation. Even kids often don't have access to counsel. Compounding this issue is that these kids being split from their families didn't actually come over unaccompanied. They came with families, but they're being split from them as their families await hearings. Since last October, 700 children have been separated from their families, and the number is expected to rise sharply with the zero tolerance policy. So why are so many of these families coming over here and risking their lives on the journey? So this influx of families, including children, are not only coming from Mexico, they're also coming from other places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, countries that right now are experiencing a great deal of corruption and violence due to gangs and drugs. So these are refugees that have come here and are seeking asylum. The Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan think tank, has released a report based on a poll they conducted from April 25th through May 1st of this year. According to the survey, 51% of Americans believe the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees, while 43% disagree. Women were slightly more in support of American responsibility than men. Bipartisanship, 74% of Democrats, and only 26% of Republicans support accepting refugees. By race, whites are less likely than blacks and Latinos to believe the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees. Support for accepting refugees declines the older the age group and rises with the level of education. So all that so far is not super surprising. Now, support for accepting refugees by religion, that's when it gets pretty fascinating. The religiously unaffiliated were more likely to support accepting refugees than most of the major religious traditions. Black Protestants were an exception as they mirrored the religiously unaffiliated within the margin of error. But across all categories, religion, race, partisanship, age, gender, education, the group least likely to believe the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees 
are, drum roll please, white evangelicals. 68% of white evangelicals here in America say the U.S. does not have responsibility to accept refugees, while only a quarter say we do. This is the same group that voted in the highest percentage for Donald Trump, over 80%. As a quick aside, if you're new to Potstirer Podcast, when you hear about white evangelicals in the press or in research surveys, this isn't an arbitrary racial religious description. The designation white evangelical has a specific historical significance. Christianity in the U.S., especially in Protestantism, has had a long history of racial separation. Many Christian denominations, evangelical denominations especially, also mainline denominations to some degree, have histories of church divides over slavery, racial strife, or a mix of both. Because of that, these churches on both sides of the divide built theology around these issues to justify their takes on them as well as retaining the unique leadership structures and doctrines of their particular denominations. Most older white evangelical denominations exist due to these divides, and most were on the side of slavery or segregation at the time of these church splits. Now, there are a number of non-denominational evangelical churches that don't have that history, but pastors and ministers are often apprenticed within a denomination or trained at Bible colleges or seminaries run by a denomination. This is not to say that white evangelical churches today support slavery or segregation, but the history and how that influences the way many white evangelical churches teach on social issues is very important to understand how we got here. So back to the survey results. So why is what evangelicals think of the U.S. accepting refugees so important? As a practical concern, since white evangelicals were the group most likely to vote for Donald Trump in 2016, conservative white evangelical leadership now have the ear of the president. And it's telling that even under those circumstances, the Trump administration would enact policies that signal support for this constituency while also pushing rhetoric and policies harmful to refugees and other immigrants. Most white evangelicals claim that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, inerrant meaning without error. Not only most say they believe it, their leaders proclaim as such. The vast majority of the top evangelical denominations have as part of their statements of faith that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Given the emphasis evangelicalism places on the Bible as the inspired, and for many, inerrant word of God, in other words, the Bible is word for word without error. What does the Bible say about immigrants? The Bible has a lot to say about immigrants and is pretty consistent throughout the Bible, but I'll share just a few passages here. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Deuteronomy 27, 19. This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. 
Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Even the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which has been all too often misused to justify discrimination against LGBT people, is really about how we show hospitality to immigrants. So why do a lot of evangelicals not see the connection between what so many see as the infallible word of God and their views on refugees? I think it's partially because of the common human tendency to desire mercy for ourselves while demanding justice be meted out against others. Part of it is kind of like what I talked about, a legacy of the racial history behind much of white evangelicalism. But I think the other part of it is that the nature of evangelicalism often lends itself to a strain of authoritarianism. And that authoritarianism, coupled with decades of power-seeking embraced by prominent evangelical leaders, leads to the type of outcomes that are based more in culture than in religion. Some might tell me, well, Jay, no one's perfect. Aren't you holding these white evangelicals to too high a standard? But you see, this isn't about perfection. Of course, none of us are perfect. But being imperfect is no excuse for telling the world, do as I say, not as I do. Don't claim to believe in something you really don't. One hundred eighty thousand children have been taken into custody at the U.S.-Mexico border as part of the unaccompanied alien children policy since 2013. Once these children were transferred to the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR, their job is to resettle them within the United States. The sponsors, the people who take in the children, again, usually parents or other relatives, are supposed to be vetted to make sure ORR are not placing a child in a dangerous situation. Once released, a case manager from ORR contacts children 30 days after release to make sure they're still with their sponsor, in school, aware of court dates, and safe. According to congressional testimony by Stephen Wagner, Acting Assistant Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, from October to December 2017, the agency followed up on 7,635 children they had placed with sponsors. 6,075 of them were still living with their sponsors. 28 had run away. Five had been deported. And 52 were living with someone else. Then Wagner says, quote, ORR was unable to determine with certainty the whereabouts of 1,475 UAC. In other words, 1,475 children, almost 1,500 children, have fallen off the face of the earth. Families are missing their babies, and no one has been held accountable. So what has happened to these missing children? Well, no one knows. Some speculate that the families, out of fear of themselves or their children being deported, didn't answer their doors or phones, or even run on the run when the ORR caseworkers came knocking. But the reason the oversight policy was put into place back in 2016 is because of several reports 
that children slipping through the cracks were being sexually assaulted, starved, or forced into working for little or no pay, and were possibly being sexually trafficked. Now, the reality may be a little column A, a little column B, but the government not knowing where 1,500 kids are while under their watch is extremely disturbing. But that's not the only issue that's come up with how the government treats migrant children. The ACLU recently released a report based on documents attained from U.S. Customs and Border Enforcement regarding complaints from detention centers where undocumented children are being helped. This is a bit graphic, but here are some of the descriptions of these alleged abuses from the ACLU report. Punched a child's head three times. Kicked the child in the ribs. Used a stun gun on a boy, causing him to fall to the ground, shaking with his eyes rolling back in his head. Ran over a 17-year-old with a patrol vehicle, then punched him several times. Verbally abused detained children. Denied detained children permission to stand or move freely for days and threatening children who stood up were transferred to solitary confinement in a small, freezing room. Denied a pregnant minor medical attention when she reported pain, which preceded a stillbirth. Subjected a 16-year-old girl to a search in which they, quote, forcefully spread her legs and touched her private parts so hard that she screamed left a four-pound premature baby and her minor mother in an overcrowded and dirty cell full of sick people against medical advice, and threw out a child's birth certificate and threatened him with sexual abuse by an adult male detainee. No one was held to account. No one. Now, this is nothing new. This has been going on for several years. The claims actually stem from allegations of incidents occurring between 2009 and 2014, which was during the Obama administration. So this is definitely not all on Trump. But how Trump has referenced these children who have been separated from their parents, made to live as prisoners, and subject to trauma and abuse. Well, at a roundtable held at the Morally Homeland Security Center, Trump said regarding undocumented immigrant children, Quote, we have the worst immigration laws of any country anywhere in the world. They exploited the loopholes in our laws to enter the country as unaccompanied alien minors. They look so innocent. They're not innocent. Children enduring abuse at the hands of our government without accountability and essentially blaming them and not showing any compassion or care for their very lives. It's sick. And too many don't see the contradiction between support for this and the Bible they claim to follow. Donald Trump and his surrogates have gone on a campaign of calling the MS-13 gang, an international Latin American street gang of U.S. origin, violent animals. Trump and his supporters defend the characterization due to the violent nature of the gang and their involvement in weapons, drugs, and human trafficking. Others criticize the use of the term animals because it dehumanizes those involved. I think the characterization should alarm both Christians 
and pretty much anyone who has any grasp on history. And here's why. First, I'll kind of talk about this from a Christian faith perspective. Every life has intrinsic worth, and no one is beyond God's grace. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Should people who commit crimes as part of MS-13 be prosecuted? Of course. But to frame criticism of Trump's rhetoric as a defense of MS-13 is disingenuous. To those of you who are also Christians, here's the thing. Calling these gang members animals allows us as Christians to forget that they are first humans created in the image of God and God loves them too. There have been plenty of people who have done despicable, horrible things, murder, rape, assault, who have later changed their lives around. And if Luke 7.47 is any indicator, those who are saved from a lot of sin tend to have a greater appreciation for that gift of salvation because they're acutely, re- because they're acutely aware of what they have been saved from. But okay, even if we go beyond a purely Christian or religious perspective here, there's another major issue with calling MS-13 animals. Calling Latin American gang members animals, while not doing so for other very violent groups and individuals, like the Nazis who marched in Charlottesville, beat DeAndre Harris, and killed Heather Heyer, who were very fine people, or the men and boys who have shot up schools and churches and other places, many of whom have been radicalized by white supremacist Nazi propaganda. It makes it clear to anyone paying attention that at least in Trump's mind, it's not the violence that makes MS-13 animals. And this type of narrative permeates this administration. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein claimed that while he was the U.S. attorney in Maryland, that the gang activity there was fueled by children who were undocumented, saying, quote, We're letting people in who are creating problems. We're letting people in who are gang members. We're also letting in people who are vulnerable. So we slide from assuming that children coming to the U.S. are here to join gangs, which was a problem that the U.S. created, by the way, to acknowledging that vulnerable children are coming here, but they need too much to be saved that we should close off the border to those escaping violence in their home countries and leave them to die because it's not our problem. It's the kind of thought process that leads to young undocumented boys being falsely accused of being in MS-13 and other gangs, even though many were brought to the states to escape danger from gangs. According to reports from Rewire and elsewhere, young boys from places like El Salvador are being picked up accused of gang membership based on evidence that's specious at best. And then that's what's being used to deport them back to the danger that could take their lives. These kids are being sent to die. And it's easy to see these kids and see them as the danger because we're being told this by our government. See, this is where you can see the through line from the specific call out of MS-13 to justifying the separation of families, the deportation of vulnerable children, and justifying the detention of babies and children who may be subject to physical, mental, and sexual abuse. 
It leads us not to empathize with mothers and fathers who, like most Americans with kids, would do anything to protect their children and give them a better life. It allows us not to see the humanity of children who, just like our own, want to laugh and play and enjoy friendships. Just like our own. And if our leaders can take the humanity away from children, it's not a leap to paint the entire group of Latino immigrants as dangerous animals we should all be afraid of instead of people fleeing poverty and danger, looking for a better life for themselves and their families who are doing what most of us would surely do if we were in the same spot. There are real life consequences to denying the humanity of other people. The African slave trade led to untold people being taken from their homes, primarily in West Africa, put on boats in dirty, inhumane conditions to be sent to several European countries and their colonies, including the United States. Slavery in the American context was for life. This was not indentured servitude where you could work off your freedom. You were born a slave and you could never leave. Slavery was often brutal. Slaves worked long hours doing back-breaking work, toiling in the fields on labor-intensive crops like tobacco or cotton, or cooking and cleaning for the slave owner's family. They were often beaten by slave owners or overseers. They were sometimes raped. And when slaves got married, joined together, and had families of their own, at the end of the day, it didn't matter because they were often split up through slave auctions. Husbands separated from their wives. Parents separated from their babies. Can you imagine going through the horror of being bound somewhere with no ability to leave? You could try, but if you're caught, you just get sent right back and likely endure a worse fate because you have no rights. Your well-being is dependent on the whims of someone who owns you. You could be worked to the bone regardless of the weather or your health. And you could be beaten at any time, violated at any time. And not only that, you could wake up one day and never see your family again. And there's nothing you can do about it. During this time period, Sarah Brownrigg Sparkman transported 91 black slaves to Mississippi. She wrote about hearing the slaves sing spirituals and described them as cheerful. But as she was writing about her own sadness about being separated from her family back home, she had no ability to connect the singing of the slaves as an expression of their own pain as being separated from their family members. According to scholar Heather Andrea Williams, slave owners commonly found ways to justify the horrors of black enslavement including the forced separation of slaves from their children, parents, spouses, and other family members by making the argument that black people did not feel feelings as deeply as white people. President Thomas Jefferson once wrote regarding black slaves, quote, their griefs are transient, their numberless afflictions, which render it doubtful whether heaven has given life to us in mercy or in wrath are less felt and sooner forgotten with them. In general, their existence appears to participate more 
of sensation than reflection. In other words, Jefferson saw slaves as animals, not people. Now, here's the thing. Most white people in the South did not own slaves, but the government supported slavery as property rights, and the church in the South also supported it. And when the Civil War broke out in 1861, white men who never owned a slave a day in their lives signed up to fight. What's so crazy about this is, at one point during the war, and this is after the Confederates had gone from a volunteer army to a conscription army, a law was enacted in the Confederate States that allowed men who owned 20 or more slaves an exemption from the war. So the war was being fought for the property rights of people who were given a pass to sit on the sidelines. But in any case, it's easy to do horrible things to people or stand by and watch without any desire to act when you believe that the victims aren't really people at all. Speaking of standing by and watching, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum discusses bystanders on their web encyclopedia. Bystanders, in the general sense, are people present at an event who don't participate. They're witnesses. In relation to the Holocaust, bystanders were neither the perpetrators of the Holocaust, nor its victims, nor those who were rescuers or part of the resistance. Bystanders were nice people who were witnesses to what was happening and did nothing. And I think that for a lot of us, that's hard to understand. How could you see your neighbors be shipped off to one part of town, then put on a train and never see them again, and think nothing of it? Or how could you see them be taken into the town square by your country's military to be mowed down by a hail of bullets and not be moved to save them? There's a lot of people that insist that if they're living in Germany in the 1940s, they wouldn't have gone along with Adolf Hitler's policies. They say they would have fought back or tried to save the Jewish people or other groups targeted by the Holocaust. But it's easy for us to say that when we don't think we're in that situation. What people also forget is that the final solution, the murder of 11 to 17 million people by the Nazi regime, was the end game. The Nazi mobile killing squads began in 1941 and the movement of detainees, including Jewish people made to live in ghettos, began to be transported to concentration camps in 1942. But the German people were conditioned to accept what was happening to the Jews, the Roma, gays and lesbians, people with special needs, and many others, long before the Holocaust. The Nazis did not start with genocide. They started with ideas. After the First World War, Europe was rebuilding. As it happens in many wars, World War I resulted in a lot of redrawn boundaries between countries, old countries dissolving and new countries reforming, which meant a lot of displaced persons and refugees. As the leader of the losing side, the Central Powers, Germany was forced to take responsibility for starting the war and were required to pay reparations as part of the Treaty of Versailles. So besides rebuilding families, homes, infrastructure, and industry at the end of the war, Germans had to deal with the fact that they lost the Great War. The government was printing Deutschmarks to pay war reparations, and at that point, 
this money wasn't backed by anything, so it was pretty much worthless. On top of that, the Great Depression hit. And the Great Depression wasn't just in the United States, it was a worldwide event. And at this point, the German government, the Weimar Republic, called the system by the German people, was essentially a puppet government and not representative of most Germans. So with many Germans facing economic, political, and cultural anxiety, Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or Nazis for short, took power in 1933. Under the leadership of Hitler, who was very much anti-communist and anti-socialist, any socialism that was part of the Nazi party took a back seat to ethnic nationalism. From the newspaper Der Angriff, countless people have despaired of the future of the German people and have fallen into hopelessness. But the greater part of the nation has a new will to resist. It wants the German people to rise from blind resignation to a new ideal. That is Adolf Hitler's work. The masses see in him their last hope. For millions, his name has become the bright symbol of the German will for freedom. Hitler represents an awakening young German idealism. He is the spokesman for national activism. He is the bearer of the coming economic and social renewal. That is why we cry, give Adolf Hitler power so that the German people once again receive what is its due for freedom and prosperity. This was written by Joseph Goebbels in 1932, right before the Nazis were in power. During the 1930s, Jewish people were described in Nazi pamphlets, in the press, on posters, and even in children's books as parasites and vermin. And according to the Nazis, even if people were living in Germany for generations, even if they long converted to Christianity, if they were of Jewish heritage, they would always be Jewish and never German. So from 1933 through 1939, over 400 decrees were passed on all levels of government, barring Jewish people from professions, organizations, and in other areas of public life. In 1937, Hitler gave a speech talking about how the laws affected his agenda. Quote, what the National Socialist Revolution has accomplished in this sphere is astounding. Think only of the following. The whole body of our German education, including the press, the theater, the cinema, and literature, is being controlled and shaped today by men and women of our own race. Some time ago, one often heard it said that if Jewry were expelled from these institutions, they would collapse or become deserted. And now what has happened? In all those branches, cultural and artistic activities are flourishing. Our films are better than ever before, and our theatrical productions today in our leading theaters stand supreme and alone in comparison with the rest of the world. Our press has become a powerful instrument to help our people in bringing their innate faculties to self-expression and assertion, and by so doing, it strengthens the nation. German science is active and is producing results which will one day bear testimony to the creative and constructive will of this epoch. As the Nazis took power, 
the ideology of ethnic nationalism permeated various segments of society. A nation was desensitized to what they heard and read every day, until even the nice people accepted it. The reason why I talk about this history is not because I think Trump will be another Hitler or that he endorses slavery. No, the reason why this is important is that we need to be careful of the dog whistle. If we accept calling people animals or vermin or parasites, there will come a time when we will accept treating people as animals or vermin or parasites. Now, while I admit I've raked white evangelicals over the coals, particularly the majority who oppose accepting refugees, this is something we all should think about. It's not just an issue for one religious tradition. It's not even just a religious issue. It's an issue of human decency and compassion. So what do we do now? Do we vote out politicians supporting anti-immigration policies in November? Or vote Trump out in 2020? Sure, but we shouldn't just wait for that. What we can do now is call and write our congressional representatives and let them know we want them to act. We can write letters to the editor in our local papers. We can go to town halls and tell them face-to-face if your representatives are still holding them. Talk about this on social media, through your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, any of the others that might be missing. There may be some other ideas that I'm not even thinking of, but if you have some other ideas, please share them on the Potster Podcast Facebook page, Twitter feed, or on Instagram. But what will also help is to use the knowledge we now have. Talk to our families, friends, church leaders, and others about what we now know. Let's change the conversation from that of law and order to that of mercy and compassion. Let's move the discussion from animals to people. When I first read about the abuses at the hands of U.S. Customs and Jeff Sessions instituting a policy to separate children from their families at the border, something in me couldn't forget what I read. I kept thinking about it all day, and it really bothered me. And, I mean, the policy doesn't affect me personally. My husband and I were born here, and our families have been here for generations. But I couldn't forget. And I had to do something. I don't want to simply be a nice person. And I hope that you don't either. Thanks so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. Part 2 of Riverside Chats will be released June 17th, so stay tuned for that. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with your family and friends, and maybe your enemies. And be sure to check out our website at potstirerpodcast.com. All episodes, social media, merch, and more are right there. It's a one-stop shop, potstirerpodcast.com. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.